you would turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to read uh, just two verses this morning, verses 12 and 13. Hear the word of the Lord. For the word of our God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would indeed expose our hearts this morning. We pray that you would give us insight, wisdom from your word, that you would illuminate it for us, that we might understand that our hearts would not be hardened to it, that we would know the mysteries of the universe that are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray as well that you would continue to help us to receive your word with faith and with love. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Probably most of you are familiar with the, uh, the original movie Jumanji that came out back in the 90s. Uh, some of you might be more familiar with the later versions that have come out since then. But the original version was based upon a children's book that was written in the 80s uh, by the same name. And a uh, similar storyline, you have a, in, instead of friends, though, you have a brother and a sister who are uh, playing in the park and they find this uh, jungle adventure game, Jumanji, and, and they take it home and, and they open up the box and they find this warning, stern warning in the very cover that says, do not begin unless you intend to finish. Of course, they pay slight attention to the warning, then immediately one of them picks up the dice and throws it. Of course, the children soon discover that every danger that they find inside the game comes into reality in their house. And so immediately he lands on a square about a lion attack, and a lion appears in their bedroom and begins chasing them around the home. Similar manner, the uh, one lands on a stampede, and you can imagine what happens, and another has a monsoon, and then, and then later on a wild game hunter, until finally the girl rolls a 12, and she yells, Jumanji, and the whole game quickly ends, and everything disappears and goes back to, to normal. But the kids were so scared afterwards and relieved that they had finished the game that they took the game back to the park, threw it away, abandoned it, and immediately got home before their parents knew anything about it. Well, of course, a children's book's a little bit different than the movie because the children's book generally has a moral to the story, and there's sort of a, a moral implied at the end, uh, for on the very next day, the siblings look outside their window and they see two very bratty neighbors very excitedly carrying the game home to play. And they overhear the mother saying, the boys never finish any game that they start and they never read the instructions. Well, the, the author of Hebrews is saying something very similar, in fact, uh, to the Jewish Christians in the church that he's writing because they're thinking about not finishing what they started. They're thinking about abandoning their faith in Christ because the consequences for them are becoming all too dangerous and too real. Things are beginning to happen because of their faith in Christ. Already some have lost their property, some have lost their jobs, but yet they have not come to the point yet of shedding their blood. 
for the sake of Christ, but it's a very fearful prospect for them, and so they're thinking about not finishing uh, what has begun. So the writer of Hebrews is, is, is writing to them to warn them that, that just as the Israelites had failed to enter into the promised land because they didn't finish, because they didn't follow God's instructions like they should have, in the same way he's telling them that they can fall into the same danger if they do not listen to the voice of the Lord in Jesus Christ. In fact, um, in our passage last week, uh, we see him quoting from Psalm 95, uh, David is saying, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as those did back in the time of the desert. Because if they dismissed God's word with great consequences, then you can only imagine what type of consequence would ensue if you dismiss the word of Christ. That's his point. Of course, this isn't the first time, though, that a group of followers who had followed Christ didn't finish following him. Uh, after Jesus had spoken these very hard words, if you remember, in John chapter 6, many of his disciples turned back and no longer wanted to follow him anymore. And so Jesus turns to his own 12 disciples and he says to them, do you want to go away as well? And Peter says to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And that's the, exactly the point of the author of Hebrews this morning He's basically saying in a nutshell that if you turn away from Christ, you are turning away from the incomparable Word of God. Where else will you find eternal life except in Jesus Christ? And in these two verses, he points out a number of uh, qualities that I want to try to summarize into three unique attributes of God's Word and that these attributes commend to us to read his word and to take it in with great reverence and faith. So here are the three attributes. First of all, the word of God is living. Second, the word of God is active. And then third, the word of God is penetrating even to the depths of the heart. First of all, the word of God is, is living. You, you, know, you probably remember in grade school, in science class, you probably had to fill out some sort of worksheet where you had to label the difference between an animate object and an inanimate object. Do you remember that? Uh, for instance, you might have had a, a shoe. If you don't remember it, you weren't in a dumb school. It's okay. Uh, but in my school, I remember there would be like a shoe, and you had to label that as inanimate, not alive. And then you might have a turtle, and you'd have to say animate. And then you might have a piece of paper, and you say inanimate. And then you'd have a person, you would say animate. But in my school, I didn't go to a Christian school. They never asked, what about the Bible? Is it animate, or is it inanimate in that regard? Uh, well, clearly, the, the writer of Hebrews puts it in the animate category. It is a living book. It is alive, uh, somewhat on par with Jumanji as a living game. Of course, we don't expect to open the books, open the, the pages of, of the books of the Bible and, and find these things coming out to us. It's not like we're going to read Exodus and all of a sudden be chased by the Egyptian army. Or we read creation in, uh, or we read Genesis and we find our house is flooded by a great deluge. It's not going to be like that. But rather, when we read God's word, we actually meet something of God himself. The living God, we're meeting him. It's not the stories themselves, but the God of the word who is 
living that we meet through it. In fact, um, again, playing off that same passage in, in John chapter 6, just prior to a number of his followers turning away, he says to them, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Because they're coming from the living God, they are living words that give life to us. So, in, in fact, you could say it like this. Um, just as God had spoken life and creation into being through his word in the same way when those who read his word with faith, he speaks new life, regeneration into them. There's something that happens. In fact, that's what the Apostle Peter says. He says, you have been, been born again through the living and abiding word of God. Something happens when you read God's word, it brings people to life. And it, it, it's not, of course, just the, there's nothing special about the, the binding or the, the, the pages of paper in the Bible. It doesn't even have to be a, a literal hard copy of the Bible at all. It could be an app on your phone. The point is not the book itself, but rather the content that you find on those pages. They are the very words of God, the living words of life. I mean, think about it. If you were to go to the library and ask the librarian, do you have any living books? You know, do you have any books that are alive? You know, she might look at you really funny, you know, but, but eventually you point out to her that, you know, you, you might have a Bible on your shelf somewhere. In fact, I, I challenge you, if six of us do that, you'll, you'll drive some librarian crazy here locally. But literally, if you read any history book that you find in the library, you, you might learn something about a particular figure in history, but you'll never come to know that figure merely by reading the book. In the same way, you could pick up any novel, and, and you could be very impressed by the author and how he writes these stories, but you'll never get to know the author himself, certainly not the characters themselves, by reading the book. But when you read the Bible, you come to know the author of the book, who is the main character in the book. You come to know the living God of this living Word. And so the writer of Hebrews is telling us that we need to be very careful when we hear God's Word that we listen. We're meeting God himself through the pages of his Word. It's alive. But then in addition, he says, the Word of God is also active. Uh, uh, the Greek word that's uh, translated in the ESV as active here is, is originally the word energase. We, we get the English word energy from it. There is an active energy that is at work here. It's not just a, a book that's alive, but that somehow is dormant, that's sort of passive and has to be woken up. It's always full of energy, always full of kinetic energy, ready to do everything and is doing everything as it's being read, as it's being preached. It's accomplishing things. And that's what the prophet was saying in the passage that Mark read earlier in Isaiah 55, verse 11. God says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth it shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which i propose it shall succeed in the thing for which i sent it so the word of god isn't just saying things to us it's doing things to us as we read it as we hear it preached it's doing things in us it's changing us in fact um paul says to the thessalonians first thessalonians 2 13 he's reminding the believers that when they had received uh, God's word, they had received the Lord himself. He says this, they received the word of God which is at work in you who believe. 
Notice he's not saying that it's only at work when you read it, but even after you read it, it's still working in the person who has read it by faith. That's exactly what Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 13 as well. That God is working in us both to will and to do according to his good purpose. Long after we've read it, the Spirit is still working on us through the very words of God to change us from the inside out. He does that in a number of different ways. We may read it and then afterwards come under conviction and be rebuked and be encouraged and be taught and trained for godliness. It's still working on us long after we've read it. In fact, um, Martin Luther, near the end of his life, he's trying to sum up uh, what happened in the Protestant Reformation, how quickly the world was turned upside down. And, and, and he says simply this, he said, I just taught the Word. I preached the Word. I, I wrote about the Word. Otherwise, I did nothing the word itself so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word of God did everything. The word of God changed people. They just merely needed to hear it. They needed to hear it read and preached to them, explained to them. In the same way, King Josiah, if you remember in the Old Testament, there was a whole generation that had not heard the word of God. Because of wicked kings prior to him, they had shut down the doors to the temple. It was just full of rubble. And all of a sudden, we see a man finds the Bible. He finds the scroll of God's Word, reads it to the king. Immediately, the king repents and seeks to live for God. And immediately, he has it read to the nation. And revival breaks out in the land because they have heard the Word of God. Same thing happens later on. You have an entire generation in Babylon who are not hearing God's word. They come back. Ezra reads the Bible to them all day long. He reads the Bible to them, and they begin to weep, and then they begin to rebuild Jerusalem. They begin to restore the glory of God's name in their midst, all because the word of God is working in them, changing them, and then changing the society through them. It's the same way today when we reverently Read God's Word by faith. It's alive. It's active. But it's also penetrating. The, the writer says that the, the Word is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. The, the two-edged sword is, was called the, the gladius, uh, from the, the word from which we get our concept of the gladiator. The gladiator would carry this sword in the same way it was the standard issue sword for a Roman legionnaire. It was a short sword, but a very sharp sword that was meant to be able to cut on both sides in order to pierce through any enemy's armor. In fact, uh, it was colloquially known as the drinker of blood was the type of sword that they used because it was guaranteed to draw blood. It could pierce through anything. If you remember, it was the, the famous left-handed judge, Ehud, who had taken and made his own gladius and hid under his cloak and then stuck uh, the fat king, Eglon, with it. Similarly, though, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, the apostle John sees the glorified Christ, and part of the imagery that he is seeing is not the short sword, but this long sword double-edged sword coming out of the mouth of Christ the King. 
And that's meant to be something intimidating. It's meant to be somewhat of a threat, in fact, because we read later on in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, when he's speaking to the church at Pergamum, he's beginning to tell them, he says, these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, and then immediately he rebukes them for their sin. He rebukes them for allowing certain things in the church, and he says to them, if you do not repent, then I will come to you and war against you with the sword of my mouth. So it's meant to to show there's a, a threat on the one hand, but also something more to that. And in our passage this morning, the writer seems to be using the imagery of the two-edged sword in both ways. On the one hand, it's meant to pierce into the heart to reveal something. And on the other hand, it's meant to warn if someone does not heed what the Word of God is saying. So again, the writer of Hebrews is talking to his generation. You have some who are true believers who are walking with the Lord, and he's saying, this word is able to penetrate into the depths of your heart. On the others, for those who are not true believers, that same word will be used as a threat to cut you off from the Lord if you do not heed it. It's interesting that the word that he uses uh, in, in the Greek for the word pierce, it's suggesting something that always reaches its destination. It will go where it needs to go, and it will, it will accomplish its work which, in reference to the, the heart of man, the hard heart of man, something that can finally reach to the very depths of his heart. You, you're aware of Jeremiah 17, verse 9, where we're told that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can even understand it? He's saying somehow this word of God is able to penetrate into the very depths of the heart where that deceit lies, where that sickness lies and is able to do something to bring it out the word of god can reach into the very soul of a man find out the root causes of that hardness of heart and, and it does that through division through discerning between the good and the evil deciding what are the intentions of the heart of the man judging his motives judging our desires we naturally think that we're, we're doing good that we're trying to do good works but the Word of God is even able to help us to see the evil that is attached to those good desires. There's evil desires mixed in. Again, the, the, the Greek word in that, that sense of discernment is the word kritikos, from which we get our English word critical. It continually critiques our attempts, our desires, our passions to help us to see that they're not as pure as we think that they are. It says James says in the first chapter of his epistle, in verses 23 and 24, the, the man of God, as he reads the word, he's like a man looking at his face in the mirror, and the word is showing him everything, warts and all, showing him the very depths of his heart, the wickedness of his heart, and how it needs to come out, how it needs to be dealt with. When the, 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 the word of God is read, certainly we're reading it with the intent of learning about God and his ways, but it's also telling us something about us, it's revealing us to ourselves. It's revealing our own hearts to ourselves. It's shining a light upon dark places in the heart that we don't want to see. We certainly don't want others to see. It continues to penetrate and penetrate to help us to see there's something wrong. It's interesting though, we, we admire wise men. I uh, think of Solomon and uh, you remember the dilemma of the two women that both were claiming the baby that was theirs and he 
helps to discern the truth of the matter by literally wanting to divide the child in half, and only then can he really see which is the truth and which is the lie. But we see that Jesus is greater than Solomon. He doesn't need to use trickery in that sense to see the truth literally a couple times in in Gospel of Matthew. He sees into the heart of men, and he asks, why do you think these evil things in your hearts? He sees right through to the very heart what's going on in the inner recesses of their mind and their soul. That's what the Word of God does. It's the same thing. It doesn't just treat us from the outside, but goes right into the middle of the very inner being of man and helps us to see there's something wrong that needs to be dealt with. Of course, that aspect of God's Word can be scary to us. Uh, that, that knowledge that God can see into our hearts is fearful. Uh, no wonder Dwight Moody once said that the Bible will either keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. We have a tendency not to want to really read it, certainly not with faith, when it begins to show us how ugly our heart really is. It's interesting, though. Um, I remember when I was a kid, uh, I remember there used to be some sort of something people would stick on the inside of their Bible that would say something like that, warning, if you read this book, it might change you. Remember seeing anything like that? It's interesting. I was trying to find that the other day online. I couldn't find it. Instead, I was finding all of these atheistic stickers uh, by people that want freedom from religion, and they all had these stickers that they wanted to put on people. I, I'm sure they're not putting them on their Bible since they don't read the Bible, but somehow selling it to people, I guess. And they're supposed to put it on their Bible to say, warning, this is a work of fiction. Yet it also says, but it's also dangerous to your life and health. Can you have it both ways? If it's just a work of fiction, what are you so worried about? And why aren't you printing out stickers for the Quran and the Bhagavad Gita and all these other religious books? Why just this one? It is dangerous because it's alive, it's active, and it penetrates into the heart of man. But in order for for it to benefit us, we have to be willing to let the Word of God do that. We have to be willing to read it with that in mind, that it would do that. It's through the penetration of God's Word that the Holy Spirit pierces our hearts, pierces our thoughts, our motives, our desires, shows them for what they are, exposes them then to us so we can see it as well. In fact, verse 13, he says, No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, those who are walking in fellowship with God are happy for it to do that because we want our sins exposed. Because we know that we have a Savior who has covered our sin, who has shed his blood on the cross for our sin and has made atonement for it. But we also are happy to have our sin exposed because we hate our sin. We want to be done with it. We want to be rid of it. We can't if we can't see it. It says, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7 at the end of his saying, I do what I don't want to do, I don't do what I want to do. He says, who will save me from this body of death? He wants to be rid of his sin. He wants it to be exposed. But it's strange that that word exposure, I, I think it includes even more than what we think of in terms of nakedness. Uh, literally, the, the, the Greek term, again, it's a fascinating term. It's used in a lot of different contexts. It, it literally, though, means to take someone by the throat. I'm going to expose it. 
and the different context in which it's used, sometimes it's used in, in terms of wrestling, where literally an opponent takes him by the throat and holds him up helpless before he pins him to the ground. In another context, the, the priest is taking the sacrificial animal and he holds his neck back right before he slits its throat. And then a really interesting one is before a man was to be led away to execution, his, his holders would hold his neck up and put, put the, the knife right underneath his neck to make him look at his audience so that he could experience the shame of his crimes. Now, when you think about that, the Word of God is not just exposing us naked before God that we can see the sin, but it's also showing something as of, of our helplessness to be rid of that sin on our own, as well as to help us to see the shame, the guilt of our sin, to expose it to us, to make us look at it, to make us look at the darkness of our soul so that we can turn to Christ by faith. It's not an accident. You'll notice in the next section that we'll, we'll preach on next week, right after it talks about the Word of God exposing sin in this way, immediately it points us to the great high priest who can deal with that sin. If you think about it again in the Old Testament, when God gives the law, he gives the Ten Commandments and all these other commandments, as soon as he gives it, what does he give right after that? Immediately he shows the tabernacle and the priest and the need for sacrifice. The law is meant to expose it and then lead you to cleansing through a sacrifice, through a Savior. It's only those who know and love Christ who want their sins to be exposed in this way because they know Christ. They know he will cover all of their sins. But in the same way, it's only those who want to be exposed so that they can put their sins to death. Why? Because they want to live more fully and freely under the lordship of Christ. It frees them then to live a life of wisdom, a life that pleases God, a life that is enjoying God rather than fighting against him. Now, why is that so important? Because if we don't see our sin and God doesn't expose it to us through his word, then more than likely a root of bitterness is going to grow up that will lead us away from the living God, that will lead us toward doubt and disobedience, and that will cause us to fall away from the living God, just as the Israelites did in the desert. He purposely is helping us to see the correlation between those who had walked away from God and those who had refused to hear what he said. He's speaking to us. Let us listen to what he says. Let the word of God do its good work in us. In fact, I was thinking, uh, if you go back and you look through the liturgy today, you'll see most of the hymns are all about the power of the Word of God at work in our midst. We ought to pray before we read God's Word, similar to the way we sang, Speak, O Lord. Teach us, Lord, full obedience. Do you really want that? That the Lord would show you full obedience, holy reverence, true humility, do you really want him to test your thoughts and your attitudes in the radiance of his purity? That's what we sang earlier. Did you mean it? That's what he wants from us. Uh, listen, to, this is a prayer that uh, 
used to be prayed a long time ago uh, by a number of people. They, before they're reading the God's Word, they would say it this way, O thou elect blade and sharpest sword, which are able powerfully to penetrate the hard shell of the human heart, transfix my heart with the shaft of your love. Pierce, O Lord, pierce, I beseech you, this most stubborn heart of mine with the holy and powerful rapier or the powerful sword of your grace. Stab me, cut me, divide it until I can see the good from the evil and turn to you by faith. Even as we'll sing it just a minute from now, the final hymn, O grant us grace, almighty Lord, to read and mark your holy word its truths with meekness to receive and by its holy precepts live. As we come to the Lord's table here in a, a few minutes, it's a renewal ceremony. It's to renew us in God's promises and his word toward us that he loves us. He's repeating his vow to us. But in the same way, the Lord's Supper is also a way of us renewing our love for him and our willingness to say, he is Lord, we are not. There's a way that he wants for us to live, and it's all by his word that we would submit ourselves again to learn and to live by his word, to treat his word reverently, to receive it with faith and love, not to take it lightly, not to read God's word in vain. May the, the word of Christ so work in us that we would have the faith to believe that and to live by those precepts. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would continue to do your great and powerful work by the power of your Holy Spirit working through your word. Oh, Lord, discern the depths of our hearts. Show, put a spotlight upon our sin. Help us to see it. Help us to hate it. Help us to, to want to get rid of it, that we might know the, the wonder and the beauty of Christ's salvation of how he cleanses us of all of our sin, of how he has already done the work that is required of us. The perfections of God are found in Jesus Christ. Lord, let us turn to him. Let us look to him. Let us trust in him. And let us, as a result, be done with our sin. We pray these things in Christ's name.